<laughs> That's just confusing. Is that is that real or imagined? I don't even know anymore. It's all in your head. Live. I don't feel like we've been live in a while. Where did we go? From a November-shaped headache. No. Oh, shaped like it. a fallen oak leaf. What does that even mean? It's the ESG Industries only weekly woke data podcast featuring analyst Hall Matt Muscardi. Yeah. Woo! You know, you say an oak leaf shaped headache, and actually now I'm thinking of an oak oak leaf. That does make my head hurt. Uh, that's just working alongside me for the last few years. In today's <laughs> a different problem. In today's ESG blindfold called November 15, 2023, a quick peek around our wonderful world of random ESG awesomeness and a delightful preview of our conversation with NYU professor Allison Taylor. Allison Taylor. Yeah, Allison Taylor. Um, and that's not yeah, just regular NYU. Fun. That's Stern Business School NYU. It's not just all, yeah, the, it's not right. all the wannabe that's script right. writers. Okay, this is real serious <laughs> stuff. I Honestly... I, I edited the, the interview with Allison, mm -hmm. and we're going to play a clip of it today. And it's really hard to not play the whole thing. As I was editing for the oh, clip, just nice, for today's show, nice thing to say. it was like the whole thing. She, her life story, like what she did, like the book that she wrote, it's all actually... What I'm, I'm, no hearing, blowhard. It's what I'm hearing really is good. that you were transfixed by my incredible questions. <laughs> Now, we don't have a sponsor anymore, which I, I maybe I don't know if I should celebrate that. or be sad. We're taking a break in sponsorships. Might be might come back. We might get new sponsors. Hey, if you've always thought about sponsoring our show, now would be the time to jump in. Look, if you think it's on brand to have smart, intelligent, fact-based data underneath people who recognize the absurdity of the world and aren't afraid to call it out, occasionally dropping an F-bomb, if you think that's on brand for Look, you, I'll this just say is this. the show. We had this Hall of Famer. We, we pre-taped a show yesterday with Hall of Famer Doug Chaw. We and did, he said yeah. at the end of the show... He said, I don't know how you guys do it. How do you how do you do it? How do you compile this much amount of research and analysis like on a daily basis? On a daily basis. He's absolutely correct. The, the answer to that is I don't I don't actually know. I, I have but no we do clear have a sponsor idea. for today's show. Our sponsor for today's show is freeflowanalytics.com. Okay, I was gonna yeah. plug instead tell him to shut up. I was gonna plug Allison oh, Taylor's okay. new book. It's not an official sponsor, but I wanna plug it. It's called Higher Ground, How Business Can Do the Right Thing in a Turbulent World, uh, an indispensable guide to help companies navigate the new era of ethical challenges and risks in a volatile global landscape. Wow, that sounds but that's a lot. That's a intelligent. Lot. Yeah. That's really like a lot of syllables. A lot. That like. sounds great. Higher ground. It Allison is action. Taylor. It is an action book, as in like they she talks through a problem. She's like, here's what you do. It's mm -hmm. very practical. All right, come on, let's let's do the show. All right, let's <laughs> wait. We're, we're done with that. Here we yeah. go. <laughs> I got ten incredibly awesome ESG headlines. Actually, they're kind of packed. They're kind of packed with uh, fervor today. And then fervor. we will wrap up today's show by previewing our interview with Allison Taylor. What, what, what do you have? Like a clip? I got a clip. It's a nine-minute clip from okay. a forty-minute interview that will drop tomorrow. Awesome. See, Allison, see how good we are to nothing? I don't know. I don't know what that meant. <laughs> Let's go. General, okay, Matt, this one is confusing me. 
General work General Motors workers are voting against the UAW contract. This is unbelievable. <laughs> uh, union workers at Ford and Stellantis are happy. They've been steadily approving the contracts, but there's been opposition at GM, and they're saying it's because it appears to be coming from veteran GM workers who are disappointed that uh, they weren't able to negotiate gains like stronger retirement benefits. I mean, wow. look, the level of self-interest here Shocked. is insane to me. Yeah. This is, uh, uh, can I congratulate myself? No. I don't actually agree with you, but go ahead and tell them why you, you're going to say it. I, I called the UAW negotiation mm -hmm. as they settled the contract dispute or yep. settled air quote the mm -hmm. contract dispute the top that is the apex well it's all downhill from here we're not going to see better than that gm workers i guess are disagreeing with you they want more they think that there's more negotiations to happen they're not I'm satisfied telling you, i'm telling you that if this gets voted down, oh my God. that contract was absolutely 100% the top. There's no way they're going to get more because the retirees are pissed off. For once. They are giving a lot to the employees. And the employees had a tremendous amount of leverage. And now the retirees are holding what? The actual workers hostage? They've retired. Like they had their job. It's not, it's not necessarily retired workers. This is veteran workers close to retirement. But that's what my point is. You're holding like what? 80% of the workforce hostage. But isn't that because what you didn't get better retirement benefits for yourself? But isn't that what we're learning from this older generation of Americans is that they just go around complaining that young people are complaining because when they bought a house, it was $10,000 and it was easy. And now it costs a million dollars and they're, they're laughing at the younger generation for not being able to afford homes. But it's really insane. I don't know how this is actually like when we talk about this function in the house of representatives in the United States, because seven people mm -hmm. um, like hate trans people and that's it. And their whole agenda is shut the government down and kill the trans people. And we're like, wow, that's a tremendous amount of dysfunction. The UAW and unions are supposed to be like these leftist organizations. We don't have a different problem. It's a minority controlling the majority. That's what ends up happening. And it just shows you like compromise is almost a dead art at this point. I don't know if you can't look at this and celebrate it as a victory for yeah. not just labor. In fact, if they vote this down, who does it help? It doesn't help their retirement benefits. What it helps is the Teslas of the universe say, see, it's way worse to unionize well, because you'll go on strike and get nothing for it. I will say in the meantime, several other car companies have already raised their wages for their workers. But but let me right. just, Without let me just a say union this. Now, let, and now all the young workers will go work there with no union. Let me just say this. This, this, is not, this negotiation, this contract is not dead yet. They're still voting on it. Um, I don't know how it works. Is it is it go by plant by plant? It's not a total overall worker vote. I think it's like the Electoral College, right? Because some plants have said no. Some plants have said yes. But the, what they're saying is that this might come down to the fact that some local union leaders are just better at explaining the deal than others. Oh, right. Oh, that's Which is really, again, this great. is a great, this is a, a great, uh, metaphor for our own democracy, right? I, it's just, it just comes down to who understands and who doesn't. 
that's a great metaphor for our data, right? Like our data. Yes, everything like, is, you, everything. It, it's like if we can translate the data, there's no reason why people wouldn't vote differently. Well, that's exactly what we're seeing. Meanwhile, at Starbucks, Starbucks workers at hundreds of U.S. locations will walk off the job on November 16th as part of a union-organized action. This is on Red Cup Day. I never heard of this. Red Cup Day, I guess, is when Starbucks gives away holiday-themed cups for free. I didn't know this is a thing. <laughs> I didn't Not, know that was a thing either. But thereby, it means it's like the busiest shopping day at Starbucks all year. They're calling this the Red Cup Rebellion, Rebellion Sorry, and workers are calling on the company to turn off mobile ordering on high volume promotion days, improving staffing and scheduling issues, and to bargain more with the union. Wow. So, so you know, the Starbucks, the, the the engagement, the worker engagement at Starbucks that we covered for several years, it still hasn't reached an end game, right? Like, it, it, there's obviously still more to come in this story because we know that some locations unionize. We don't really know to what benefit. We know others did not even try. So something is still, no, I'm sorry to use this pun, something is still a brewing over there at Starbucks with this labor movement. I wonder if it's going to become a bigger thing or who knows. Well, I do know that, didn't they just raise wages for hourly workers and they for, added some benefits, but it only was for not... You, only for non-union workers. So no, was, right? some union workers will benefit, but I some. feel like they didn't... I, I read that they didn't get all the benefits. So they're continuing so to antagonize like, the union. We're still doing this? Yeah. What are we still doing yeah. this for? Just, so, and, yeah. and now they're using because they're a union as... The, the reason why they didn't get all the benefits because they have to negotiate and and vote on it. And and this is true in as much as when you're negotiating with a union, you have to negotiate and then do something. But it doesn't mean they can't give them the benefit. You can just give them benefits, right? It's not mm -hmm. like the union has to like vote on, oh, we're going to give you $5 more an hour. Oh, well, nope. No, don't give us more unless we vote on it first, because we might vote that down. That's not the way it works, does it? Isn't it? It's like it's a, this is this is pure antagonism. Uh, let's go over to McDonald's. The boss of McDonald's oh. in the UK, uh, and that that person actually has a name. It's Alistair McCrow. I don't know why they want to call him the boss of McDonald's in the UK. Like he's a like a nameless. <laughs> what a know, weird way. Like to he's a Lego piece, right? Like what is that? <laughs> Uh, said, or like the end guy on level three in Mario. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand the guy. business. The business news refuse to name people. They just they're afraid of it for some reason. Uh, he said that the company has received over four hundred complaints, some of which included sexual harassment in a span Oof. of four months, sometimes up to two a week. He said that the experiences of some of the fast food chains workers were quote truly horrific and very hard to listen to. He also said these cases are absolutely horrendous. Uh, and this comes after an investigation by the BBC in July, uh, shedding light on the fact that McDonald's staff uh, were routinely harassed, bullied, or sexually assaulted while at work. So this is like an ongoing horrific scandal that McDonald's can't seem to get under control. This is nuts. Absolutely nuts. But I don't... Why are we... D did he just talk to them for the first time? I don't. The boss of the UK. I don't. I'm unclear about this. I think what the BBC article did is is it kind of emboldened a lot of the workers to start reporting these incidents. So there's they're starting to to kind of cascade in. I don't really know what's going on. I mean, like, 
did is this the first time they've ever asked for the complaints? I thought that. Like, I'm, yes. Let's not forget that that part of the problem with the McDonald's business model is that mo- most of their locations are not operated yeah, by the corporation. Franchise. Exactly. That's right. So they're just now starting to admit that some of their franchise owners are horrible human beings, horrible, right? Horrible. Yeah. And the BBC I, has forced them to do this by reporting on it. So. It, but apparently they have the power to get this information. Yes. Like they don't, the, the, the corporate offices don't have to wait for a news organization mm-hmm. to break the story that right. says everyone in your stores is harassing s- women. Like you don't have to wait for that story to break. You could have proactively said, we want to check in with all of our franchisees about how they think about, you know, including our workers and not discriminating and maybe not groping them. Oh, maybe. Uh, up, oh, up next, Google CEO Sundar Pichai gives rocking. Oh, really? Oh, really? Isn't booing okay. Sundar? I didn't realize that was going to be so. Gives rocking 75 minutes of tense testimony in Fortnite antitrust trial. Here's the reason why I picked this article. I wanted to focus on this. Rocking, yeah. Uh, According to the article, at times, this is part of our Southeast Asian uh, CEO theory. Uh, The the article says, uh, this is out of Fortune magazine. At times, the soft-spoken Pachai looked... Looked nonplussed and frustrated by the confrontational questioning he faced. Other times, he came across as a professor explaining complex subjects to the jury. This is right. This is exactly why that we thought that we thought why the actual controllers of Google of Alphabet hired someone like Sundar Pichai. Exactly. Let's not forget. Let's not forget Sundar Pichai. According to our data, only has five percent of total influence because. Alphabet still is a duopoly controlled yeah. by uh, Bryn and Page. Yeah. So in fact, they tried. They this is exactly the reason why they hired him to to be to go to these type of trials to be soft a soft spoken professor essentially. In fact, I called Sergey Bryn and Larry Page and asked them for a quote about Sundar getting grilled here, and mm-hmm. I got a, a clip of the audio. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> For two men, they sound. That's just a robust laughter. There's a lot. They were they yeah. were in a room They're full of people, rich, though, and rich. they were yeah. They they could just hire people to be yeah. a laugh track behind them. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about two activist cases. People who Ooh, could like who could desperately use our data. This is this is my that is 100 percent correct. I'm actually I'm actually quite serious about this. First, uh, activist investor Value Act Capital has taken a stake in Walt Disney. Value Act is the second activist investor. Uh, to arrive at Disney after Nelson Peltz's try-in fund signal that would be pushing for multiple board seats. Look at that, multi-activists. activists yeah. What a wonderful lightning rod for activists, Disney. That really is. Well, this is the second time they've done it, too. I, I Like, you know, I know everybody's angry at Disney for something. Value Doesn't Act. Doesn't that mean you're doing something right? Value Act, I know you're listening. Reach out to us. We we could we could come up with so many different ways to, to target like which directors to vote out, which yeah. directors to keep, mm-hmm. whatever. We could help you find other directors to put in place with high performance rating. So we Got could it, talk man. about this forever. We have the data. We have the knowledge. Come on. What are you waiting for? Yeah, call us. I don't know why you're listening to this and not calling us. I will say this: it won't come cheap. <laughs> that is also correct. It's gonna be in the it's gonna be in the low <laughs> millions for our advice. Uh, <laughs> 
Also at Goodyear, Goodyear CEO is to step down. That's uh, Richard Kramer is Ooh. stepping down after Elliott Investment Management basically uh, shook the cage over there at Goodyear. Uh, so he's stepping down in 2024. And here's the reason why I pointed out this story is that according to our data, Kramer only had 19% influence. There were a bunch of other powerful uh, influence blocks over on the board at Goodyear. So this does not surprise me that he couldn't hold on to power over there. That's all uh, I'm going to say. This is the same Elliot that mm -hmm. took a stake in Twitter, ousted Jack Dorsey because he wanted to live in Africa for 10 minutes. Right? Tried to oust. Tried to oust. Yeah, okay. Just want really, to make sure we've got the racist Elliot activist yeah. and not a different one. Well, it's a, it's actually an interesting point because th that that has really got the ball rolling to suggest that maybe uh, Twitter needed to be a takeover target, right? That that might have been the start to that the was Elon it. Musk empire, right? That was the because they because were worried that he was trying to open up a market to to the 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 most the, the, the biggest continent on our planet. That's what they were it worried about. It also got board members on the board who were friends with Musk, right? Like as part of that. Egon Durbin is that one of them? Yeah, Egon yeah. Durbin joins the board and is like very was pro friendly Musk. With Musk. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, um, just want to make sure I get the same one. Although I, I like that the activist managed to do it like with a 2050 target date. Like he's stepping down by in 2024. Well, I hate to tell you, but 2024 is in, is in a month and a half. I hate to tell you that. Oh god, it feels bad. Ralph Don't Nader profiles 12 leaders who did it right in his new book, The Rebellious CEO. It's a book that focuses on 12 CEOs that Nader found to be, quote, wonders of values and performance. This is like a perfect for us. Um, so I, here's why I chose this story. Not only does it really kind of align a little bit with our vision, right? I mean, we're kind of a looking for that blend of values and performance, I suppose, right? I mean, isn't kind that of, yeah, kind yeah. of what we're doing? Data on it, yeah, Although sure. we are looking at performance, and we're the only ones to do that. So, Ralph, hit us up. But the reason why I, I – another reason why I picked this is that he uh, – the list of 12 CEOs, these are people that we never talk about, which doesn't surprise me because we're usually – outlining horrible CEO behavior that that needs that, that we think that the board should take extra look at. But these are people like John Bogle, the Vanguard Group, oh, Anita on, no. Anita Roddick, the Body Shop, uh, Gordon Sherman, Midas International. So, I, I, you know, it's just a, a random list of people that don't make our show. So I, I'm kind of, I'm happy that they don't make our show is what I'm trying to tell oh, the you. Way, the, so the John Bogle, I feel like I don't understand at all. Well, like you should read the book, uh, I guess. It's yeah, chapter I, one. I, it's chapter one. But it's a, it, that's a group of investors who voted for nothing. Hey, read like the they book. voted with management a hundred percent of the time, basically. And um, they do everything to avoid anyone looking at them. Uh, the one that stood out to me was the, the, the weirdest one was, Bus boys and poets. <laughs> Andy Shalal, the CEO yeah. of Bus Boys, Bus and, boys poets. and Poets. What do you think that is? Which I looked that up, and it's a restaurant uh -huh. and a coffee shop that does events in so it's his DC. Favorite, it's, it's his favorite like, coffee shop. It's Ralph's it's favorite. Literally, he just wrote about his favorite coffee shop as like the the leaders who do it right. But it's like a guy who owns a coffee shop. Like, it, I guess it also might be a, a nod. Interesting. It might be a wink to me because I was a bus boy in high school and I studied that's writing. True. I studied uh, you know writing in college, so maybe that's he's true. talking about me. It's possible. And look where you got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, being a busboy better than a waiter because you share the tips and you're not crying every night. You don't have to, people yeah, aren't yelling at you. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. No uh, sexual harassment. Speaking of uh, horrible CEOs, uh, here's an article out of, uh, who cares, Futurism. I don't, what is Futurism? Do it's know? a bloggy article place. Uh, this is based on uh, reporting from Reuters. There's a new Reuters in- investigation about a SpaceX worker that died nine years ago, and the company kept it secret. Aww. Not only, even worse, although I, I don't know how it could be worse than that, uh, according to a new investigation at a Reuters, uh, there have been over 600 unreported injuries out of SpaceX of varying wow. severity, despite it being a regulatory requirement to report uh, all of the, any injury to OSHA. So this is what's going on over I there at am, SpaceX. I'm kind of shocked, right? I am Who totally would shocked yeah. that the, whoever the owner is of SpaceX would whoever not care about is, regulations yeah. like from OSHA. I am yeah. totally and utterly shocked. When are we going to get to the final straw with this dude? When is when is the board of Tesla going to be like, this guy's reputational risk is too much? When are we going to pull the... I, I mean, like, we just saw a proxy that listed Vince McMahon as a risk factor mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. the company he's mm-hmm. the executive chair of. Like, they just said, like... I mean, they could have just said as a sentence, Vince McMahon is a risk to our company, and then just moved on to the next next risk, risk factor. I don't understand at what point a risk factor becomes such a liability as you could just vote that guy out. In fact, everyone, hey, let's look. Does Elon Musk own dual-class shares? He does not. You can vote him out of Tesla tomorrow if you wanted to. I mean, I should, I should add that, uh, again, these are 600 unreported injuries uncovered by Reuters. So so that, that doesn't mean that that's all. That's it. I mean, Yeah, that's never all. That's yeah. what they could find. All right, let's get super nerdy. You're going to hate this one. Oh, God. A, a, an analyst from Liberum, I've never heard of them, but doesn't, doesn't okay. mean they're not great, has hit out at MSCI over its ESG ratings methodology, warning that they may feature monetary conflicts of interest. Oh, I hate the... Okay, so these are wrong. Okay. (laughs) I want to talk about this. So he... So uh, comparing MSCI ESG research, which receives most of its revenue from selling index licenses, and Refinitiv, which gains the majority of its revenue from selling data, the paper found that ESG ratings from MSCI were systematically higher... Then Refinitiv, he also made the claim yeah. that it seems that MSCI ESG ratings change if the share price performance of a company changes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, go ahead. I'm, I, I can tell you're, you're, there's a big pregnant pause coming out of you. I can't wait to hear your rebuttal. I reached out to the authors mm-hmm. of this when this I read it. This is a paper it. called, out of Columbia and Emory, called ESG ratings of ESG index providers came out in September. Yeah. So um, I reached out to actually um, one of the author, authors, mm-hmm. um, uh, Shivram uh, Rajkapol, uh-huh. who's out of Columbia. Sure. I reached out to him and said I had. I was very nice. I said like I, I, I think the paper actually is incredibly misleading Uh-oh. because nowhere in the paper mm-hmm. did they actually talk to an analyst, right? Like they're <laughs> using, they, they, they use like yeah. the number. They basically just said like, oh, the ratings are inflated and we found it to be like um, statistically significant. And mm-hmm. therefore we're implying that there is a monetary incentive uh, for MSCI. Look, the first part, 
could be true, but to jump to the to the conclusion that there there are may feature monetary conflicts of interest, that's a bit but much. But the, yeah. the way they got there was mm-hmm. to compare MSCI's ratings to Refinitiv's ratings. They just did one-to-one, MSCI to Refinitiv. And I said, do you know the difference in how those ratings are constructed? And they, they, they don't. They don't know the difference. Like so, Refinitiv's model is called is a double disclosure model. The, uh, I'll get totally wonky. We, we want to go there. Go ahead. I like, mean, I already st- I already stopped recording, so you can keep talking <laughs> if you want. So the way the model works for Refinitiv is they basically say, "Did you disclose a thing? Did everyone else disclose a thing? And if yeah. you disclose something that no one else did, you yeah. get credit. If Nobody you don't disclose and everyone else did, you don't get credit. Mm-hmm. And then they have like some little bells and whistles that they add on top of that, like controversies and things like that. Right. But for the most part, it's a disclosure-based model. Tick MSCI, sixty percent of the model is about risk and regulatory filings, not voluntary disclosures. So the models are totally different. And we know they're uncorrelated. So what they did was they tried to make the models more correlated. Yeah. Not to mention that they're, they're correct me if I'm wrong, but they're mistaken in the, in the sense that MSCI ESG research is a segment of MSCI. And it, correct. it has its own yeah. budget, right? It's responsible for its own revenue generation. It's actually it firewalled. To, yeah, it's, 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 it's not... It's, it's misleading to suggest that it's getting money from the index part of MSCI. That, so the way it works inside of MSCI, and this is mm-hmm. why I wrote to them, like, I wish you just talk, ask, like, I'm not in MSCI anymore. I can tell you yeah. how this worked because the time period was when we worked there, actually. Sure. Yeah. And I said, the way it works is ESG creates a rating using data that they collect by hand themselves, like mostly grunts. Yeah. I can show it. you my paycheck and, and prove that there were no monetary I can show you my fingernails. I was like, they're dirty no, from all I the had, digging that I had No bribes in my paycheck, unfortunately. And then the ratings are done and then the ratings get published, mm-hmm. t- you know, to their clients. And then the index product team comes over and says, we're going to use that to create an index. I can, in fact, I can prove no there was a firewall. I can prove there was a firewall MSI by saying that nobody important ever talked to me when I was working That's there. true. Yeah. <laughs> That's I, the proof. Well, I, that I can, conf- I can confirm. <laughs> I, so I reached out and I said this to the author yep. mm-hmm. of it. A- in fact, the level of sort of pomposity Mm, he mm. took my email, forwarded yeah. it to his team, Uh-oh. and said, effectively, do you think we should try to talk to him? Oh. And then l- let's why make not? sure... They're academics. Why wouldn't you just gather more sides of the coin? They basically said... Um, um, he, and then he said, let's check and make sure... That the the that our findings are robust because we can put the onus on me to explain mm-hmm. why they're not, mm-hmm. and um and, and that things may have changed since he left. Except that the time period they're looking at is the time period I was there, and he implied that like I might be off my rocker. And and then I had to write a long email <laughs> back, being explaining everything I I'm explaining to you I right didn't now. Think- I didn't think you'd have so much to say about this. Well, because I actually reached yeah, out. I love and it. now they're getting headlines about this, and it's so fucking wrong. Well, the, the headline is, to is be like y- I hope yeah. they get sued. I the, really do now. The headline point. is coming from an analyst who read the paper and is treating it like gospel. That's what I that's the problem. So maybe you can reach out to him. Maybe you can reach out to him. Like uh, like there's no point, right? Like at this point, 
we're so we don't know nobody knows what they're doing and everybody's looking for clickbaity headlines in fact the the way they titled the paper was basically that like there's some duplicitous dark room that in MSCI they're rubbing their hands together and adding companies on indexes because there's an incentive a monetary incentive to do that I got zero extra pay. I was an executive on the ASG team. I got zero extra pay f- about indexes. I was a little, I didn't even know who worked in half of the index team. Yeah. And no one I'm ever sure asked I even my got opinion. Pay beyond, beyond it doesn't extra pay. work that way. It just doesn't exist. So yeah, I have a lot to say because they basically said, I, I might be off my rocker and mm-hmm. the onus is on me to prove to them what I know is true. And I was like, what a bunch of fucking assholes you guys are. This is why I don't To be clear, to be clear, I'm not calling you guys assholes. So if you still want to reach out and and come on the show, I'm I'm happy to have you. This is over a month ago I wrote them these emails and they didn't they then they ceased responding. They're probably shocked laid it all out. They're probably just shocked that anybody cared or read the paper. I think they're shocked that there are human beings who actually work <laughs> in these places. Like and, the, the, yeah. they think it's just numbers you can and regress backwards and maintain actual uh, knowledge it's about the process. Unbelievable to me. So yeah, I have a lot to say. All right, and finally, as a segue to our uh, last to our our clip from Allison Taylor, there is a yeah, uh, Allison article today out of BBC out of the BBC called I like this title actually. How ESG came to mean everything and nothing. I think that's perfect, actually. Uh, this is talking about uh, the fragility of the entire ESG movement, and in some aspects, a major catalyst for its downfall may well lie in its name. Downfall. Which may well lie in its name, which has morphed into an umbrella catchphrase with little concrete meaning. What they're talking about is companies that rush to use the ESG label and then now yes. have to shed the label. Okay. Okay. And Allison that Taylor, yeah. they, the reason why I picked this article is because they quote... Allison Taylor, a clinical associate professor at NYU Stern School, uh, about this uh, very story, and she says, uh, "To she said to uh, to the article, I explained to my students that there was a time when business was politically neutral. They tell me that's not an option anymore. So that that's kind yeah, of a good that's, that's segue true. into our interview with Allison. That is a good segue. And let me just say, like there was a, I actually there was an article by. Uh, Aswath Damodaran, who's mm-hmm. the valuation mm-hmm. professor at NYU. Whoa, Stern. Um, at Stern. So at Stern, right? Yeah. Um, and he wrote uh, ESG, RIP is dead, whatever. It's mm-hmm. dead, like it should have never existed. And you're talking about the everyone, moniker, you're talking about the label. No, no. He's talking the, about ESG, he confla- he's a conflator. He just uh-huh. said ESG was set out to do good in the world and it failed miserably and it didn't have anything to do with valuation either. After it didn't do good, they pivoted to valuation. And after it didn't do valuation, it pivoted well, to this other thing. Like yeah. he's doing like a thing. Well, he, here's where here he's wrong and, and where I appreciate Allison Taylor because she actually talks about that in this article. She says that although her students may not be looking for commitments that are designated as ESG initiatives, they do hold the view that business's role in society is one that must recognize the movements around them, whether they be diversity initiatives or divestment from fossil fuels. So, so the, the point being is that, is that you know, we're, we're getting confused by the label and there is, things aren't dying 
right? Yeah. I mean, that's where he's wrong. The, the thing that's confusing is that it's just a data set and it's yeah. badly organized. Because it's not it, that and young people don't you care about this existential crisis exactly. going on in the ESG industry, right? Because yeah. well, we, they're still going to push forward with things that matter, and those things are not going to go away because Tariq Fancy is whining about it over somewhere. Right? <laughs> well, you actually, yeah. um, it is a good segue because tomorrow the interview will drop the full interview and we discuss a little bit about this sort of like political, she called it split screening in the interview mm -hmm. that we did. You can listen to the whole thing there. But here is the amazing Allison Taylor explaining, or She in this clip she's going to talk about transparency. We're going to, we're going to, she's going to talk about transparency not being necessarily the panacea. Here's Allison Taylor. We are with Allison Taylor, the author of Higher Ground, How Business Can Do the Right Thing in a Turbulent World, which actually comes mm. out in February of next year, which mm. makes me feel incredibly special because I've read the whole thing already. Mm. Like that's never happened to me in my life where someone was like, Here. you've read a whole book. I read, I read <laughs> that's never happened. I've never read a book. She's also the clinical professor at NYU Stern School of Business and I want to start with the fact that your bio, like that I read, is doesn't do justice to the bio. The w there's one line in the book that I, the quote is in my 12 years as a corporate intelligence specialist, which please tell me that's as fabulous and like secretive and you're like you're a nin a corporate ninja because that's how it sounds. Was that it, it, what it was, it was like? It was fun. I mean, it was really a lot of fun. And I uh, I was first of all in this job, head of Middle East and Africa investigations, and then head of the Americas. So I spent a lot of time in Lagos. Uh, I spent a lot of time drinking with journalists in bars. Uh, I spent a bit of time <laughs> in Dubai. Um, and I, uh, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I'm incredibly nosy and I like to gossip. So if that is ah. your interest, this is the perfect job. I, I really you had a lot of fun. Yeah. You sure. Yeah. There you sort of described ESG data really. Yeah. <laughs> Gossiped and nosy. Yeah. Well, I mean, sort of, uh, I, actually the book is full of like these story nuggets that are amazing. They're, the, the most damning one to me was the Nazaki story, which I'm oh, yeah. sure I might be saying it wrong. Um, but there, there was a, there, there's like quotes in there, like, um, about how uh, uh, one immediate problem we faced was that compliance teams were asking questions that were somewhat, somewhere between difficult and impossible to answer. <laughs> and then goes to, there's simply no neat paper trails. The long nights I spent in hotel bars with well-connected sources usually raised more questions than they answered. It really does sound like you're wearing all black like rooting through the trash of mm. of like like supply chain to figure uh, out who owns this company it has it been known it was known yeah i mean that was um that was how i spent my time this was something that it was an industry that in the 90s was pretty sleazy it was like oh. black ops and counterintelligence and then after 9-11, uh, everybody started to get obsessed with corruption and terrorist financing mm -hmm. and money laundering, and the industry pivoted to uh, investigating corruption. But I think hmm. this is obviously salient to how I approach questions of ESG more recently, because this is where I develop my nasty, suspicious mind and not right. believe anything <laughs> anybody uh, tells you. So that proved to be a very useful mindset when I moved over uh, into sustainability. But it also, when I moved over into sustainability, 
sustainability raised a lot of questions about what corporations were up to because there was this very siloed approach between all the nice stories we tell in sustainability mm-hmm. about the wonderful things we're doing and then what was actually happening when I was working with the lawyers. So, yeah. So when you see a press release come out of a company, and I'm generally talking about large companies, do you immediately laugh or giggle or like you, you're like, you're like Fox Mulder and, and, and Scully, you trust nothing, right? Or, or is it like, is there nuggets that you see when you see some of that stuff? Do you flash back and you're like, you know what? This nugget seems true. And the rest of this definitely feels like bullshit. Uh, I guess I I would say having, if you spend a long time in this field, you get good instincts for things. I think I have good instincts usually for where to look and what might be more or less credible. But, you know, I mean, this highlights a big problem in this whole space in general, right? Not to um, kind of jump to these big themes, but we act very often as if, if companies are just more transparent, we will all collectively be able to sniff out what is bullshit and not and Mm -hmm. hold them accountable in some way no one ever fully spells out. And I think as we know, like if you spend any time in the supermarket wondering what kind of eggs or coffee to buy, it's overwhelming, it's confusing. Mm -hmm. We've all got enough to do. And I don't know how we got into this idea that the public is somehow supposed to hold corporate America accountable because it's hard, even if you've got a lot of expertise. So, uh, yeah, I think we're in this weird conversation where we're kind of encouraging corporations to bullshit um, and then getting very angry with them when they do. Yeah, let's talk about the disclosure issue because it's very prominent in the book, like um, like uh, the 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 recognition that disclosure isn't the solution, right? Like, and and the double-edged nature of disclosure. Yeah. Why is it not the solution? Damien well, is a, no, like, I've... full transparency, like, uh, like oh, he's all the way at the other end of the spectrum. Like, make everybody do stand-up comedy routines and record them and then make those public, like, that that kind of thing. I think, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't think transparency is bad per se. I just think we're telling this weird story. If you look at um, the CDP website, for example, and what it was saying when, when it was founded in 2000, it's kind of like, we're going to push all these companies to disclose and then we're going to hold them accountable and then we're going to drive change and tackle climate change. I think we need to just uh, recognize that it's now 23 years later and we're still arguing about what and when to disclose and we still act. if this is going to be a panacea um, when it in fact isn't. I think also we Mm -hmm. don't acknowledge company disclosures are massively complicated even when they're not trying to lie to us. So the notion that if we just get more information, (laughs) we'll be able to hold these entities accountable in some way that's never fully spelled out, I think is wishful thinking. And I think it um, it get, it's a lot of job creation for the conscience-ridden children of boomers. It makes a lot of people feel like they're doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, but when I look out there, I'm like, wow, there are a lot of people working on information and lot, not a lot of people working on actually changing anything. Uh, so that's what worries me about this. We treat it My, as a solution yeah. it isn't. I agree with you, but I wonder, is there not an unintended consequence to asking any anyone to disclose anything about that? Like if I had to disclose my relationship history to everybody when I like met a new partner, wouldn't it kind of make me a better partner to the next one? Like if I had to admit 
some of the stuff that I did wrong and like you know what I mean like I just think that like and then they would no one would date you that's okay but that's fine but I'm just saying like is there not a is there not a positive unintended consequence that by making companies just tell us who they are to the best of the of their ability that as a society we're kind of we're at least like edging towards more proper behavior I don't know I mean maybe I'm Pollyannish about this it certainly puts in place a lot of very expensive efforts uh, by companies to tell us who they are. I'm thinking about the recent Apple ad, and I just don't even know. Sure. Um, yeah. but, uh, but I'm sure they're, they're, they're saving Mother Earth at, at the same time. There's, I use an example from the book about how kind of Congress got ruined by all this transparency. No one can do deals in a, you know, behind the scenes and get things agreed. True. It's far too um, awful to look like you might be cooperating with the other side because we're so polarized. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of instances where transparency or feeling like you're being looked at the whole time, uh, being like you're like um, asked, like, you know, look like you're being asked to perform there's now this kind of tendency with esg data we've got to have it all real time uh, so that we can all out there somehow hold these companies accountable in a way that isn't happening so we sort of have got this idea that more and more and more and more data is going to somehow resolve yeah that's true it isn't i will say you you bring out um something that really hit me close to the heart when you talk about like there's the transparency, but we ne- we rarely think about the receiver of the data, right? Um, yeah, we and- don't. We, well, we do when we're standing in the supermarket trying to figure out what coffee to buy. We are the receiver. I, I spoke at a tea conference right. and people there were like, we can't even fit all the certifications on the packet anymore. Mm, yeah. um, I don't know who we're helping. I don't know who we're helping. I also think this is easier to see the problem with this if we think in human terms, you know. Transparency is just another word for constant surveillance, if you put it that way. So I don't think humans respond very well to the notion that their email and everything they're doing at their computers is being tracked by their employer. Um, And I don't know that uh, corporate entities respond very well to the notion that stakeholders are evaluating them and pointing fingers at them the whole time. I think the other thing that's really interesting is in the sustainability community, we tell uh, companies this weird story, which is if you're just more transparent, stakeholders will trust you and you'll have a better reputation and you'll drive more shareholder value this isn't true we tend to mm-hmm. attack often the best performers not the worst performers the best place to be is in the middle of the pack with your head down we punish the best companies so we're telling people a story that isn't true and then we're not surprised the skepticism that was allison taylor you're on mute still. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't us. No, it was us. But the third person wasn't us, right? The woman? That's not us, is it? <laughs> well, yeah, she's I'm better than us. She yeah. was much better than us. That's Damien Rollis. Hazelnut Rollis. Hazelnut Rollis. Hazelnut Rollis. <laughs> well, you drink hazelnut coffee once. That's what it's going to be for the rest of my life. It's fine. I I'm like your that. analyst, Hole, Matt Muscardi. We are Free Float. This was Woke Wednesday. Come back on Friday for our weekly wrap-up. And stay tuned tomorrow for the full interview with Allison. And next week, we're going to have some new stuff, possibly that we're going to launch with Doug Cha, the Hall of Fame, Governance Hall of Famer Doug Cha. Agreed to be on our show again. So stay tuned for that. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>